Hi there, and welcome to The Brave. I'm Bethan Vincent, and I'm your host for this podcast series. And this is a podcast all about resilience, whether that's emotional resilience, physical, mental, the resilience of the planet. We attack this theme from a number of different angles in each episode. Now, this week, I've got a really interesting guest on the show, Dan Merriman. And with Dan, I explore a number of topics from dealing with the pressures of academia and what to do if you kind of want to drop out and explore different paths, what exploring different career paths can look like, and also kind of how people's social media perceptions don't necessarily align to the realities of their lives and how to kind of handle that. Now, I'm just going to jump straight into the interview with Dan because I don't want to hang around. It's really great. I hope you enjoy it. And thank you very much for listening. My name is Daniel Merriman. Uh, I'm a sociologist and product manager at the Raspberry Pi Foundation. Uh, for those who don't know, Raspberry Pi is mostly known because of the computer that shares its name, uh, but we're also a charitable foundation, uh, which has a mission of putting the power of computing and digital making into the hands of people all over the world. So being able to manufacture uh, small, cheap computers feeds into that mission. But in the foundation, we're involved in a whole range of educational initiatives, such as teacher training, uh, putting together projects that help young people learn how to write code and build cool things, um, and supporting volunteer-led commuting clubs as well. It's a pretty important day, isn't it, for the Raspberry Pi Foundation today? It is, yeah, yeah. Um, We launched Raspberry Pi 4 this morning at 7am, so that was an early start for for everyone. Uh, But yeah, it seemed to go off uh, pretty much without a hitch. It was uh, yeah, really pleased to see that all the uh, all the work that the digital team had done beforehand to make sure the uh, the site wouldn't go down worked so well. And then Cloudflare uh, broke the internet, so <laughs> so something a little bit out of our control. But um, no, that was uh, it's, it's been a really great day, and it's been great to see such a positive response to um, to, to the new Raspberry Pi. Um, and so yeah, working for an educational charity is, is not really something I ever thought I'd do, but one of the benefits of it is that I can really sort of scratch that itch for teaching that I've always had. Uh, I was uh, originally training to be an academic, actually, at, um, at the university, but I dropped out of my studies on more than one occasion. Uh, and it's something that I wanted to do desperately for, for years. But I found that my mental health wasn't quite up for working in an academic environment. And so you know, I moved into tech and now as a, as a product manager, I can use my background in sociology to help build socially responsible products and I can feel like I'm actually doing some good. And it's really interesting you mentioned the kind of link between academia and poor mental health because that's we're seeing it more and more in the news at the moment. My partner is in academia as well and I know throughout his PhD he really struggled so I was just wondering if you could tell us a bit more about that kind of period. Oh absolutely yeah so I mean I can work backwards I suppose um, oh, actually, I guess it's working forwards. So I dropped out during my bachelor's degree initially uh, due to quite prolonged periods of depression and anxiety, as is, I think, relatively common in the UK. And I dropped out for about three years. Uh, I tried a few different things. I worked in retail for a number of years. I went back to college because I thought, I know, I'll do some different A-levels because that will set me off on a different path and that will help me out except I then dropped out of that. Uh, eventually, I went back. I did go back to university. I did finish my sociology degree. Um, 
and I went on and did a master's. And then after a couple of failed attempts at funding applications, I eventually got onto a PhD scholarship to do a PhD in sociology. So that's a really interesting pathway where you've kind of had to kind of swerve around, go different ways and then come back. How how have you found almost the braveness, to use the term of the podcast, to carry on with that path, even though you kind of had some knockbacks and setbacks? I think it did. It did involve a certain level of resilience. I I think for me, one of the great motivators was a sense of fear of not knowing what else I could do. Uh, in, in a way, it had always been my, you know, I, I don't feel like, I don't feel like I'm an especially ambitious person, but I'd always mm. felt like I would be an academic or that was a career path that would be something that suited me. I knew people who were academics. I've got family members who are academics um, and that the freedom that such a career seemed to offer to me as, as a younger man uh, felt very appealing. And I felt that if I didn't uh, get my PhD or if I didn't get the funding for a PhD, I would have been able to do a PhD. And then what would I do? Uh, I didn't see many other opportunities because I didn't have any, I guess, points of reference for other careers which felt like they would provide me that, those same kind of opportunities for, for freedom of thought and to doing a career that actually valued the things which I valued rather than feeling like I was just making money uh, for the sake of it. And was there kind of like one point or one event that made you think like, no, this isn't for me, I'm going to walk away from academia? Um, I think I think on reflection, I probably always had some doubts about uh, being a professional researcher in an academic context. But ultimately, what it came down to was I knew that I had very poor mental health, that I was very prone to quite long periods of depression and anxiety, particularly depression, and that was really preventing me from doing the kind of work that I needed to do in order to get that PhD. And part of it was I knew uh, almost everyone else I knew who was doing a PhD, who had, had done a PhD or who was doing a PhD was struggling with their mental health in some way. So it felt very endemic to uh to to an academic environment that mental health problems are just a part of this and knowing and i think that that moment which you mentioned that moment of realization of oh i am probably never going to be able to get better if i try to work in this environment so that was a big part of it i suspect and can you speculate on potentially why it's so prevalent in academia because again i've heard that from multiple sources is it kind of the isolation, the workload? I don't, I'm not sure it's any one thing in particular. I think the workload is certainly part of it. A lot of the workload that an academic takes on is unseen and is not especially valued. I think what we take is a particular sort of person who is very driven and tends to be quite introspective because that's the sort of person that tends to end up being a critical thinker, particularly in sociological studies. You need to think very deeply about things. And then you prevent, you, you present work which doesn't necessarily have a deadline, um, such as a PhD. I mean, it has a deadline in terms of its three years to do it, um, potentially with an extra writing up year. But at the same time, uh, <laughs> it, 
how does one structure such an enormous piece of work when you when no one has ever uh, done that kind of work before? You're never trained uh, to do a to write a thesis uh, when you're doing your A levels or during your uh, degree. And so I think that's a big part of it. You're faced with uh, what seems to be an insurmountable challenge. I think another part of it is just the there is an awful lot of exploitation in academia as well. There is a lot of work and a lot of hierarchical navigation which you're sort of expected to do without any real acknowledgement that what you're doing is actual work, which for <laughs> a sociologist is particularly problematic because a lot of our work is about uh, looking at the exploitation of labour, and uh, it feels a little galling, I think, to be sort of be a uh, an academic researcher's Marx or, or Weber, and say, you know, this this is how the Protestant work ethic is exploited, or this is how um, different forms of of capital are reproduced, and then say, oh, by the way, you have to teach this class, and you're not going to get paid for it, or here's an extra load of marking, and you're not going to get paid any extra for it. That's really it's, interesting. So was there yeah. a disconnect between your values and the system you were operating in, essentially? I think I think so. I think I've tended to be a little bit of an idealist, and I think that's something that's never really going to go away. It's not a bad uh, thing. Well, I I hope not, but uh, yeah, there's, there's, there is something of an idealist in me, and I think uh, I've always tried to be, and as corny as it sounds, tried to be kind of true to what my gut instinct reaction is to particular situations, and not to be really kind of any respecter of of titles or names, which in the political world of academia is maybe maybe suggests that I'm not best suited for uh, for that world. And it was also really interesting what you were saying about having no kind of deadlines or structure. And as a product owner, that that's your kind of world. And I'm, I'm assuming you kind of do agile delivery, some form of agile. Yes. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. We, we do a, we do forms of agile at, at Raspberry Pi. And I've, and I've used that in other places I've worked as well. Mm. And do you think that has a positive mental health benefit? Because I've spoken to other people who who use Agile as a process for, you know, in various different roles, and they seem to really think it helps them them kind of structure their day, structure their tasks, and gives them a sense of achievement as well, which is really core to our kind of identity and mental health, I would say. I think if it's done well, it, it can be very beneficial. If you are, what we end up doing is breaking down larger tasks into smaller work mm-hmm. items you feel like you can iterate and think okay well we can run experimentation we can improve uh, we have fixed periods of time so we can see what we've achieved and we can reflect on that that's a fantastic way of doing agile i think that's probably the right way uh, to use such absolutist terms but i've also seen places which claim that they are working in an agile way that they've adopted a framework from somewhere somewhere else that uses agile and really what that ends up being is a bit of a death march uh, it's, not, it's not the same as working in a waterfall like a traditional waterfall way where all the all the priorities all the work items are defined up front and then you just have to keep going and the pressure ramps up and ramps up until it's delivered um, that's uh, a problem in a different way but scrum or agile done in a bad way can I think feel a bit relentless uh, and if you don't have an end goal in mind 
then that can cause problems for the down, the down line as well. And you need an organization to really buy into that, I think, and say, okay, if we're going to do uh, this particular method over another method, we have to have clear goals in mind and we have to understand what it is that we're trying to actually do. Mm. And to go back to kind of your mental health story, so mm. you say so you left academia, decided not for me, transitioned into tech. How, how did that process work alongside trying to kind of manage your mental health? Well, initially it was, there, there was actually a fairly long pause between leaving academia and ending up in tech. Uh, I was unemployed for quite a long period of time. I worked in retail uh, in a few different jobs, including a notable six-month stint working at Ann Summers. Whoa. Uh, with, oh, hold on there. We've got to talk about that in a minute. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I love talking, at Ansel, talking about Ann Summers. It's a, it's, a, it's a really interesting thing because ultimately, and we can talk about this later, but uh, you know, it, it's it's just a retail job. It's just a retail job, except it isn't because it's you're in a world where lots of things are suddenly totally normal. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, and ultimately you're just selling stuff. Right. And, you know, you give you try and give good customer service. You, you try and make good recommendations to people. And naturally, there are KPIs that you have to hit and, and all that sort of stuff. But you also meet people at the, sometimes at very vulnerable times of their yeah. lives. Um, and I've I've met some some great people um, through that job. You know, people who've come in and they're super nervous and they really don't know what really why they're there. And you end up almost being more of a counselor to them than anything else. And some some of my favorite people are people I've not actually ended up selling anything to. Far more important to me, it was always, you know, this is you, know, you need to think um perhaps a bit differently about relationships and you know what you value and you know think more kindly about yourself and and all those kinds of things which made me a terrible salesman mm-hmm. uh, but uh I felt perhaps a a person I could still look in the mirror at and think okay I can live with myself but that's months. you kind of going back to your teaching almost isn't it and you seem to be from what you've told me and from meeting you someone who really values human connection yeah, I think so. I, I think that's where we find the value in the world, really. And, and even as a product person, that is that is what I seek when I'm trying to work with these different teams to, to build meaningful products. Like, well, you know, what does a meaningful product actually look like? And for me, it's something that fosters human connection and um, uh, makes people feel better about themselves. Uh, if we're not achieving that, then I think we're um, we're failing somewhere. So, yeah, sorry to go back. I massively derailed there. But in terms of kind of, I was just like, hold on a second. I've got to hear about this. But to go back to kind of like you've left academia, you're kind of working retail jobs and summers. Fascinating. Uh, How did you kind of get back on track? So and this is this is one of the things that I like to, I guess, kind of expose about myself. And I I do I do a presentation uh, which I can talk about later. And I do this presentation to students about my life and my journey, I guess, as towards being a product manager where I am now. And one of the things I like to expose is that actually a lot of uh, the ways in which I've managed to get into different jobs or achieve different things is, is partly about luck and the serendipity. So uh, I've been working at Ann Summers for six months and 
a job became available at uh, a tech company in York, and I had a number of friends who worked there. They told me that it was available. Uh, I felt that I didn't necessarily want to spend the rest of my life selling sex toys and lingerie. Um, and so I applied for a, a junior project manager role and uh, and I was successful. And so that's how I ended up in, in my first tech role. Awesome. I, I worked in this first uh, tech role for uh, about a year and it was going really well. Uh, and then the uh, result of the Brexit referendum came out. Uh, and one of our biggest clients ended up cancelling about 90% of our work, and so I was made redundant, um, which was uh, as, about as fun as you can imagine. Uh, I did then get a job almost straight away, which was fantastic, and I absolutely hated it. <laughs> um, it, was a, it was a very difficult place to work. Uh, it wasn't an environment which I felt... Um, fostered good mental health practices and I actually quit after six months with no plan, no job lined up uh, and so then I was unemployed for another six months having been in acad- academia thinking I was going to be an academic quit that and had come to terms with the fact I wasn't going to be an academic then gone into tech thinking okay well tech is something that maybe I can uh, succeed in something I can I can make a difference in then Redundancy followed by a very, very quickly thinking, I can't do this job, unemployed. Uh, and then again, this is where the good fortune comes in. Uh, six months afterwards, uh, after being unemployed for six months, uh, I had an email saying, we're hiring again. Do you want to come back and be a, be a, be a project manager? Which I did. Um, and so there's a, a whole lot of serendipity, I think, that goes into my career and I you know I don't think about it in spiritual terms but I think it's important to emphasize that it's not all about you know just keep persevering keep striving hard and you'll achieve what you want to do it's it's actually sometimes uh knowing when an opportunity has come along and being able to take it that's a big part of it as well yeah that's a very humble thing to say I think there's kind of a couple of times types of luck there's kind of like blind luck like you just you're standing there right place right time but there's also kind of developing your own luck and putting yourself out out there and being kind of brave enough to change career path and be like I'm going to see this through I think yeah I think there's there's uh, I think what what has often driven me is this is that is that fear which I mentioned earlier of oh if this doesn't work out what do I fall back to what? What are my options? And as I'm as I've become a bit more experienced and I've gotten a bit older, I've become to fear that a bit less because I feel that now I have such a a, a strong base and a, a very broad base of experience to call on. I can always find more opportunities, uh, but certainly that wasn't always the case. And feeling now that I'm in a situation where okay, even if the worst happens and I and I lose my job or I go into another depressive period which means that I end up having to quit my job or I'm unable to work I will come out to the other side of it at some point and then can rebuild from there. Mm, That's a really good mindset to have. In terms of kind of managing your mental health whilst working do you have any tips you can share for the audience? Uh, So this is really interesting I, I, I think it's a very 
personal thing and I think what works for one person won't necessarily work for another but there are a few things which I try and do and I feel help me particularly with with my mental health Uh, so the first thing is that I'm fortunate and this is largely I guess a comment on privilege as well I'm fortunate enough to work in an environment where uh, my mental health is actually valued so if you're able to find an employer who demonstrates that they take the mental health of, of their employees seriously, and that means being able to uh, take breaks when you need to, it means not uh, setting unrealistic expectations or overburdening you with work or um, at least at the very minimum, uh, fosters a communicative and trusting environment where you feel that you have mentors and you have people who can say, look, I'm having a bit of a crappy day, um, you know, so I may not be at my best. That is not seen immediately as a cause for concern or as a sign of weakness or as, as a sign that you are in some way taking liberties, but is rather uh, a sign, that, OK, well, that's fine. You know, we can support you if you need it, but also take the time that you need. So to me, being in an environment which is trusting is really important. Uh, in terms of practical day-to-day tips, um, I set myself a target, a personal target of doing one thing a day. And you know, some might say that's a ludicrously unambitious goal. But I feel that if I set myself a goal of doing one thing a day, um, it is almost my MVP. Yeah, I was um, just going to say MVP. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So I set myself my MVP of doing one thing a day. And if I've done that one thing, then great. I can call that day a success. But chances are, if I'm able to do one thing, I will probably do more than one thing in practice. Uh, but I don't need to set myself that goal. Like I, I can say doing one thing can make me can make me think, OK, I'm I, I'm justifying my salary, I am making contribution, I am being productive, and uh, for me that is a, a really nice kind of fallback position to have. So that if I could sort of perhaps give one special one one particular tip uh, for for people in a similar situation, try and identify what is the sort of one achievable thing that you want to do every day, and say that is my goal, and ignore everything else until you've done that. And then at least you've done that. And if you feel like, oh, I've done this one thing, now I've got momentum, I can carry on, then then so much the better. Awesome. So this is a question I ask everyone who's been on the show, but what does um, resilience mean to you? So I've been thinking about this a lot since, uh, since I knew I was going to be on the show. Um, and I've listened to all the other comments as well and I thought there's some really fascinating ones from the other people who've been on the podcast and I think for me bravery for me isn't it's not so much about large-scale dramatic acts although those certainly qualify I think as a culture we tend to deify noble self-sacrifice or grand gestures of heroism and resistance uh, which in turn are often rather gendered in their construction so my sociological mindset Mm -hmm. And and actually, as a man, I feel a certain pressure to live up to that. Um, that, that I'm, yeah, that I'm somehow less of a man for not constantly railing against injustice, for not always doing the right thing, for uh, not overcoming my various areas of 
physical and mental ill health through sheer force of will or for not being some sort of inspirational figure and, and perhaps a brave person would be able to do all those things. I don't know, but I think the climate we're in has demonstrated and, and, and actually the climate we're in has demonstrated the bravery and resilience of some extraordinary people. You know, there are some people, uh, for example, who've put themselves out there in the face of crushing public scrutiny to say and do vitally important things and is a fantastic example of bravery and resilience. But I think there is a danger of focusing on such, on such public figures uh, because it can feel like we're diminishing or not acknowledging everyday acts of resilience in the, in the face of such heroic activity. Um, so an anxious person getting the bus is showing bravery and resilience and a depressed person getting out of bed is, is showing the same sort of thing. And it takes bravery to face the world, actually, to keep going despite the awful, often brutal nature of existence and to, to say, even though life is hard and people are scary, I'm going to carry on being me and try to love myself as who I am. And equally, it takes bravery to experience failure. Mm. Give up to be told that, uh, you know, that you are not good enough and oftentimes to believe that yourself. But still to persevere and to nurture that, that timid inner voice that says, it's OK, let's try again tomorrow. So I guess that's a rather convoluted way of saying um, bravery and resilience for me is the ability to believe that life, despite everything, is worth living and it's worth carrying on trying again tomorrow. So, so I occasionally do a presentation to students about careers and getting into product management and, and all this sort of thing. And one of the things I spend a lot of time on is the difference between the narratives that people spin about themselves and present to the world and the reality. Oh, yep. Yep, yeah, yep, so, yep. Speaking to a marketeer here. <laughs> yeah. um, so I give myself an, as an example. You know, if the, you know, if the only thing that you knew about me was what you saw on my LinkedIn profile, you know, you'd think that life had been a pretty seamless transition of successes, you know, university, postgraduate studies, jobs of increasing responsibility and so on. But of course, as we've talked about, while there's nothing untrue on my profile, it's when it's taken in isolation, it's utterly misleading, frankly. Uh, you know, all the failures, all the periods of unemployment, the struggles with depression, you know, it conveys none of that. And so I say to the students in this presentation, uh, look, you know, here is my official biography uh, and here is the unofficial biography with all the missing context filled in, you know, all the failures, all the missteps, all the times I had to rely on friends and family and colleagues to support me through different difficult periods in my life. And here's all the times I screwed up during that time as well. And I say this to them not because I want to wallow in how extraordinarily tough my life has been, but rather to show them what mundane normality actually looks like. Yeah, uh, yeah it's that saying, isn't it, that like everyone showing off their, the highlights of their showreel, they don't show the bloopers. Exactly, right? So you know, LinkedIn is one example, uh, uh, but it's equally true of Instagram and Twitter and Facebook and other social media. Um, but you know, the perfection and the masquerade of one effortless success after another that these platforms promote is, is just simply not normal and it's not true and you know i'm hardly the first to say this but you know, it's a but it's an object lesson in 
the difference between the lives that people present to the public and the struggles that are going on behind the scenes. And it's and it's hard not to get taken in and to feel inferior or to feel like a failure compared to the lives that others seem to be living. Mm, you know what? I literally was having this feeling over the weekend. So I had a bit of a bad weekend kind of mental health wise I felt very anxious and I I was I think it was LinkedIn and I was just looking at other people in my kind of vague network career path discipline and I was just there like oh my god like they are so incredible they've got all these qualifications like I don't understand why I'm here doing what I'm doing and you're just but you're seeing people and these are marketeers so they're going to be good at presenting themselves anyway and you're seeing them present their game face yeah, definitely. I, I think I I saw um I saw I saw a post from you talking about this uh, about this topic and it's it's really interesting. I, I so the students I've spoken to really respond to this part of the presentation. I mean, rest of it I don't think they could really care less about, but they really respond to this bit because for the most part they've grown up in a world surrounded by these images of unattainable perfection and whilst maybe struggling with mental health issues or family troubles or feeling stressed about their grades or what they're going to do when they graduate and for many this is one of the first times someone in a position of authority has stood in front of them and actually acknowledged in your life you will struggle and fail far more often than you succeed this is okay this is normal if you're even able to take even the smallest of steps when stuff goes wrong things will probably work out in the end. And it's the same for us, even if we think, okay, well, we're not students anymore. We should maybe know better, given that we are experienced in our fields. But why would we know better? Because no one ever really acknowledges the reality of of the lives that people live. People hide behind these masks. Um, And so, yeah, being able to cultivate that critical mindset and try and see see through that, which is really difficult, is is such a valuable skill. Yeah. So, well, I think it's not really so much a skill as a, as a uh, survival tool, frankly, in, in uh, today's society. Yeah, totally agree. Thanks so much for having me on here, Beth. And it's been really great chatting with you. We should uh, catch up more often. Uh, but yeah, uh, I'm Dan Merriman. My uh, Twitter handle is at Mr. Daniel M. You can find me on LinkedIn where I'll be totally misrepresenting my life. <laughs> Uh, and yeah, uh, if you want to find out more about the Raspberry Pi Foundation and the work that we're doing, uh, just visit raspberrypi.org and uh, click some of the links. Gosh, that was a slightly longer episode than I normally aim for, but I really didn't want to cut anything out because I thought all of the topics Dan and I were exploring were really interesting and important. So I really hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you want to find more about The Brave and the podcast and what we're up to, who we're interviewing, what's going on, please follow us on Twitter at The Brave Listen. You can also follow me if you want to check out the random things I get up to at Beth and Vincent on Twitter as well. And I'm always looking out for interesting and unique people to interview on this show. And you don't need to be famous. You don't need to be, you know, a superstar of your career. It's all about real people's stories on here. So if that's you and you're interested, get in touch. You can email me on thebrave at bethandvincent.com and I'd love to hear from you and just finally if you enjoyed this episode if you could please give it a star rating and a little like if whatever platform you're on whatever the signal is that you enjoyed it and also leave a review and that just lets other people know about it essentially and lets me know that you're enjoying it and what you're enjoying about it but until next time I'll leave it there and I hope you have an awesome week. Mm